Hey, this is Dave Broadbeck, uh, as you guess, considering the title of the podcast. But anyway, uh, this uh, lecture you're about to hear is for Biology slash Psychology 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience, which is a way better name than what we used to call this course, which was Brain and Behavior. You know, we don't call childhood development crawling and walking. Uh, so anyway, uh, Brain and Behavior is what we used to call it. We now call it Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience. This is for the uh, fall term of 2019. I hope you uh, get something out of this lecture, uh, especially if you're one of my students. If you're not one of my students, I really don't care if you get something out of it. I just hope you're entertained. Frankly, I'm kind of like that with the students. I kid. I kid because I love. Enjoy. Okay, this is, well, we were, uh, uh, next slide, but this, uh, go back to this one last time. The cell birth vibration differentiation that creates the genesis of cell death. I don't know the genesis. Um, and of course, cell death, I have it there, but... Obviously, cells don't die, they get myelinated. Okay, but there's this big part of development called synapsis pruning that happens. Uh, and cells that don't get synapses die, and then once that's pretty much gone, those cells, some of them, not all, get myelinated. That's why that's in that order. So then we have this diagram here, which is, gives you an idea of the stages of of, of, of life. <laughs> so, birth, okay, migration, so that's genesis to the synapses. But, if they don't get synapses to die, you can see this is happening between about 17 weeks and four or five years ago. So it's the case then that we get things, what we call critical periods or sensitive periods. Um, they used to call them critical periods. Always. Basically the notion of being a critical period was that if you can get certain environments that you put, the cells would die. However, things aren't nearly as cut and dry, so they would be more sensitive. So when you think about Cells like, and I mentioned this, that there are cells in your occipital lobes, all of you except for me, and others, uh, that detect the convergence, convergence angle of your eyes so you can detect death. Right? If those cells don't end up getting synapsed onto, they'll end up getting fired. By the time you're about two, they're never going to work. They got Again, neurons are really expensive items, so in fact, ones that aren't being used should die. It really makes a great deal of sense. I don't think it would have sense. It wouldn't be sense at all. But it was, uh, around and uh, try to maintain the uh, expression potential and all that stuff. So that's what happens here. We then get, and those big overlap between that and genesis. Myelination continues on into early adulthood, 20, 20s, 20s. And this is where you hear the argument, and I mentioned this last time, about people saying we shouldn't be selling cannabis to people under some age. 
because their brains are still developed. Then they wave their hand, like that was hand waving, and they clutch their pearls. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous notion. Um, is your brain still, yeah, of course it is, brain still developed. But your brain's always changing, right? This is one of these things you have to realize. It always is. It's changing right now because I'm dropping knowledge on you, yo. So it's complete, it's changing and pretty hip with the scene, right? So, and it's changing every time you do anything. It's just something you have to keep in mind. It's changing more in the part of life that you're in than the part of life that I'm in. I'm 54, you're 20 whatever. It disturbs me. I remember teaching intro psych once and looking out of the class. I was 36 years old. This was obviously 18 years ago. And I looked out at the class and I just stopped and I went, holy shit, I'm twice your age. And then I continued. But for a second there, it was like. And now I'm twice your age. More. That's disturbing. I have a kid older than most people. Anyway, um, who's in Sweden? I never got to go to Sweden when I was in graduate school. Just saying. I'm in Sweden, learning about bird migration. My name's Madeline. So, yeah, that's exactly how she talks. It's almost like listening to a recording of her. So, this gives you an idea of what's going on. You can see that most of it is before birth, right? But there's still myelination, synaptogenesis, and cell death happening after birth. So, now, you probably would think, and it's true to a point, that it's easier to fix some trauma if it's early on. So if there's some insult, and that insult usually is caused by some teratogen, some sort, you know, something the mother ingests. Maybe on purpose or not, but something the mother ingests. That's usually what's causing it. Or doesn't ingest. Right? So if you're Drinking a lot, the alcohol doesn't help, but also doesn't help that you're getting most of your calories from alcohol instead of from food where you get all these nutrients. So you have both these things coming together. But don't help. Now, it could also be for a young kid, like I don't, when I say a young kid, I'm talking about a, a small baby here. Get, being in some sort of accident and having some sort of brain lesion that the rest of the brain kind of compensates. This does happen, it's not nearly as easy as it is, say, in a, I don't know, like you cut a tadpole's tail off and it just grows a new one, kind of thing. I do have, know somebody who is working on regenerating limbs. And I'm eating mammals. Like digits and stuff. Digits, to start with digits. Get the limbs later. Uh, if you don't think that's cool, you don't know what cool is. She start, in fact, she's starting to work here in the biology department in the, in the winter. And that's pretty great. When she gave her talk, I was like, so are you from the future? You know Dr. McCauley? It's like she's from Star Trek. It's pretty cool. But the trauma, when I say fix, that's the, that's the nervous system fixing itself. That's not you doing the fixing. Like my, my friend 
promotion wants to do. Uh, so it's true that even under suboptimal conditions, you can get close to optimal development. That's something called developmental canalization. Okay, it can happen. Okay, the migration period takes six or seven weeks. It's funny, you think, well, if you're growing cells this fast, it should be pretty quick, but how are they gonna move? It's not like they can just run. And then cells are pretty small. They're smaller than that. And uh, even though the fetus has got a pretty small head, maybe about that big, we're talking about, right? Moving is, is something that's pretty, it's gonna be slow. So once they get to where they're going, we ask, how do they get there? We'll get there in a sec. I even have a cool video. Um, the GFC, if you download the most recent version of this. Uh, differentiation kicks in once they get where they're going to, once the cells get where they're supposed to be. So cells form in a particular region, differentiated in different kinds of neurons. I'm completely ignoring glial cells here. they do these cells is they, they stretch out and as they grow they pull neurons along with them. It's it's um the cells these glial radio glial cells radiate out and there's strings of them. Okay? And what they do is as they grow again they pull the neurons along with them. So you can see why it's going to be slow the, mi the migration uh, parts can be pretty slow. Song is famously sung in Alice in Wonderland. No, yeah, no, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Wizard of Oz. Hey, as you'd expect, the layers of the cortex develop the inside out, not the inside out. That would be weird. Also, structurally unsound. <laughs> so, first, I have some pictures. These are from rats, as you could probably guess. But we'll use my giant. Okay, see, my probably the best picture here. No, they're all pretty good. This one isn't great. A isn't great. C is really nice. You can see the radial glial load here. You can see them here. So what they're doing, and each of these purple dots are neurons, and this is in a rat um, brain. Oops. <laughs> You're really easily entertained, aren't you, Miller? Um, it's, not that, it's not nearly as funny as you think it is. But I'm glad you're entertained. I mean, that's, that's, that's not a slam. I think it's a good thing to be entertained. I wish I was. That's entertaining. Um, that's cool, though, right? Look at this. So these cells, these yellow bits, that's the radial glial road. And then you've got these, the purple bits are neurons, you see? That's in rats. And I think these are actually mostly hippocampal. Uh, that is, that is. At least these two are. 
Put this one here too. So you see, look at that. Then you look at uh, figure I here. You can see that you've got the whole bunch of glial cells, and they're growing out. See, and they're pulling these neurons along with them. It's very neat. Okay. Questions about that? It's pretty cool, right? I'm also using entertainment. So. Let's see, let's see if hopefully this plays. No, don't. Shit. You must play. Because it's a neat video. Shit. How do I make it play? There it goes. Okay, now this is 160 minutes is the last time as you watch this. This is, watch, look, 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 look. Look at the cell here. This guy here. Like, that's just so cool. <laughs> Isn't that good? I mean, that's just pretty neat. So it's being pulled along, basically. <laughs> and eventually it's going to get. So that's 160 minutes. Which is what? That's two and a half hours, right? 124. Two hours, 40 minutes. Uh, and it's moved, I don't know, the distance of about 10 cell lengths. That's, so you think that's still pretty quick. So here's another one. This is 76 minutes of time. Come on, there you go. There it goes, there it goes. <laughs> thinks it's adorable. You're entertained by things. This is good. You guys are great. It's a good group. Isn't this neat, though? Like, I mean, this is stuff. I remember when I first learned about this, and I just thought, well, that's cool. <laughs> you know, and now you can go on the internet and search for it and find picture moving pictures. Vidya. So, I mean, that's really cool. I think it might be another one. This is actually a mic stand if I can use this. I mean, I'm not. No. Steal it. <laughs> I think that might be it then, because it looks like that video is over, unfortunately. It's too bad. <laughs> yeah, that must be it. Okay. Questions about that? It's very neat, right? What, it's one of these things that, for the longest time, people wondered about this. Up until the, this wasn't really discovered until, geez, uh, the 80s. Yeah, that's fair to say. And for the longest time, people thought, well, it must be like this. It didn't make complete sense, but no one actually saw it happen. And now you can actually watch it. One of the cool things about being old, like I am, as I've already mentioned that I'm old, um, is that there's a lot of things that you learned as an undergrad, and you learn, oh, maybe it'll be like this, and then one day you find out that's how it is, and you want to see it, and that's kind of a cool thing. And also, then your knees hurt a lot. So, that's, that's the downside. How the hell I played high school football? I'll never know. Well, I know exactly why. Apparently, I thought it would impress women. 
Okay, so the cells start to grow, they mature, right? And dendritic branching starts. So what happens is the dendrites, the axons are, you got one axon, many dendrites, right? You know the rule? So the dendrites start to grow and branch off. Axon, axon, axons grow quite quickly, whereas dendrites don't. I was covering up my screw up by pretending I had an Anyway, so basically, uh, axonic growth is 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 is, is um, guided by various releasing factors. Go to graduate school; uh, you can learn all about it. Uh, concentrations of these chemicals really can tell the axons where to go. That's just basically how cell growth works in any in other systems too. It's not just the nervous system. But you're, you're connecting a complicated system, right? So this, that changes depending upon a lot of variables, right? Development always happens in the same order with everyone, doesn't it? But just because it happens in the same order doesn't mean it's always going to be optimal uh, and something's changed. So basically you're not going to have hardwire this the way the development works as far as this connects here and this connects there. So some of it is basically hardwired, but a lot of it isn't. But you end up with the same thing because of these releasing factors. Nervous system. Okay. So what is that? How, how do you say that number? Let's see. Hundred thousand, hundred million, hundred billion. Oh, that's a trillion. Um, you watch the Watchmen show? You watched the watch? You see that last night? The woman who you're a billionaire. And Lady True says, no, I'm actually a trillionaire. I've heard that word before. That's a lot of synapses. Um, so this, again, couldn't be pre-programmed. Right? Like, there's no way we have the computing power in our DNA, I would think, to code exactly this goes here, this goes here, this goes here. We, we couldn't do that. There's no and every developmental state is going to, sorry, every instance of development is going to be subtly different. Right? So sometimes it's going to be, in fact, usually it'll be roughly the same. But sometimes uh, there'll be environmental challenges, et cetera, or, or genetic challenges. So you wouldn't want to pre program all this stuff. It would make no evolutionary sense for it to be pre-programmed. It would also be freaking impossible. Okay. So again, chemical mess messengers are saying, go here, go there, etc. So let's think about cell death a little bit. Come on. There you go. So there's this process, basically, it's called neural Darwinism. I'll get into a criticism of the term in a moment, but it's a term that's used. It's, it's the idea of synaptic pruning. It's the idea that if cells haven't synapsed, they die. When a neuron gets NGF, neural growth factor, it dies. When is, or sorry, it doesn't get no growth factor, it dies. 
the next neuron that you've synapsed onto releases NGF. Basically saying to the cell death program, no, no, that's no, okay, we're good. Don't die. So if a cell doesn't get NGF, it dies. And the way it gets NGF is by synapse. There's other factors in here too. So this, this can happen at different times. This can be different. This is where your critical or sensitive periods happen because sometimes it's like it can wait a couple of years even. sort of Darwinian. Well, if many cells are competing for one synapse and one gets it, it gets NGF and the others die. So there's a competition aspect. That's where the term neural Darwinism comes from. Um, and brains should be efficient because they're expensive. I've been harping on this since, I think, second day. So they are efficient, yet so this, 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 this uh, process makes sense. The criticism of the idea of neural Darwinism is that it misunderstands what Darwinism is. Okay? The term is used, and I, mean, I think it's in the book. It's, one, it's a thing that's used a lot. You'll see it in, in, in articles. You'll hear people like me use it. But it's a shorthand for something that really isn't a Darwinian-like process. There's competition, yes. There are more things born, if you will, then survive, that's true. Do they then pass on those characteristics to, no. See, there's where it falls apart. They're not passing on any characteristics to the next generation. And it, therefore, it, it's not Darwinian in that sense. So it's kind of a, see the thing is, most biologists, one would hope, understand what Darwin, Darwinism is and, and Darwinian ideas are, so it's not that bad, and it's kind of a cute name, it's just that, it's not, when it gets out to the general public, which doesn't much, but I mean, as much as you were all the general public, it's a mis it can help spread a misunderstanding of what Darwinian ideas are. They are just competition. They are also passing on successful characteristics, and this has nothing to do with that. And that's a lot of people have an issue with the term because of that. And I'm, I'm on that same team. Though I still use the term neural Darwinism, I always in my head, you know, go, shouldn't have said that because it, it, it's it's not quite right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah. By the way, one of my favorite all-time when I say favorite not favorite. Um, definition answers was on a, on a test for neural Darwinism was the definition. And the person wrote, it's about the neurons and you like Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, you have four of ten. That was one of their good ones. You think about it, right? That wasn't just a joke they were doing and right, ha ha ha, disregard. No. No, this person thought, oh, I've got this one. Neurons Right there, like Darwin. Five and five. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, I get everybody screws something up in a test. I, I've had bad tests when I was an undergrad. Uh, grad school, I had some bad tests. Like, 
fact, I once wrote my PhD advisor a question that a student asked, and I didn't know the answer, so I just said, I'm gonna ask my advisor. So I emailed her, and she said, you must really have them thinking that's a great question. I don't think I know the answer either. And then I wrote back, well, it's funny that it's about this model of learning that I did so poorly on on a test in graduate school that you gave me half out of 20 on a, an answer. And she said, you never got half out of 20 on ever anything. And I took a picture of the test with my phone and filled my office and I sent it to you. Really rose-colored glasses. <laughs> so I don't like the term neural Darwinism, but it does, I get what it, why it's said. Because it's competition. I like the, and the competition, this is great. It's a really sensible mechanism that's involved here, right? Very sensible mechanism. Okay, so that's some major things. Let's look at now brain behavior, behavior and brain. Let's look at development and see how we can figure out how they go together with brain uh, with, with behavioral development. So one of the first things you can think of is motor things. And I talked about this at the beginning. Um, Basically, babies can, at birth, flex their joints, and they do a lot of that, a lot of sort of random movements. It's very kind of creepy, actually. When you look at a newborn baby that isn't yours, they're weird. When it's yours, they're the greatest thing in the world. But when it's not your baby, they're weird-looking, because they don't behave like humans at all. Do a lot of that. And one month, they can orient their hand. Remember I said the other day how you put your put your finger on the back of the hand, they'll close their hand. At one month, they, they, they'll turn their hand around and grab. Kid can't do this by about one, kid can't do this by, say, two months, you should go to the doctor. This is something, by the way, you go to your doctor all the time with your baby for a few months, get checkups, and they will test the level of these things. If your doctor isn't testing these things, I don't know what kind of doctor you have. About eight months or so, they can grab things with, they use a pincer grip, and as I said the other day, this is where they start picking things up and putting them in their mouths, and up their noses. This is where you have to baby-proof your nose. Before then, you really don't have to. This is where you have to start thinking things like, I shouldn't leave the weed out, you know. Or I remember my, my nephew, uh, Thomas, uh, one day, uh, he was probably about a year old, we were staying over at his parents' place. And I looked over and he had a pack of cigarettes in his hand. And he just was holding cigarettes. It's like, he's going to eat one and that will kill him, you know, so. So that's when you have to start being careful with your pincer grip. Okay, is this to do with the formation of myelin? Note the qualifier, could, <laughs> could, could be. It probably has something to do with it. Is it actually about the formation of myelin? I think it plays a role. But we, we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. Language is a little more psychologically at least interesting. At birth, babies basically they, they cry, and that's what they do, that's their job. Uh, and they cry about hunger and discomfort. So they've wet themselves, they've pooped, or they want to eat. Or sometimes if they're cold. Right? And they don't actually, uh, they don't weep yet, they just cry. And newborn baby cries actually aren't that bad. It's when they can actually make a lot of noise that it's bad. And then they little manipulate a bastard and start crying. 
Like at first when they're acting, they like, yeah, you go, okay, whatever. When it's your second kid, when it's your first kid, you just stand there and I don't know what to do. There is no manual. You just look, just look at it. Have you tried, you say dumb things to your wife or girlfriend. Have you tried changing him? No, no, that never occurred to me, I'm stupid. Um, Changed him three times. Tried to feed him. I fed him a bunch of times. I made him warm. I made him cold. He's crying. Then they stop. You go. I know what we did, but let's just sneak out of the room. So you don't want to sneak out of the room because you look at them the whole time. Is he breathing? Don't get too close. But I think he's breathing. You do a lot of that. For the, the first kid, you do that again. The second kid, you go. Yeah, you're fine. Because you learn. So early on, that's all they're doing. About a month in, by the way, is when they first weep, and that's, it really is, it's heartbreaking. And it's actually an evolutionary strategy that babies have. It's creepy, because we have this, tears have an effect, a uh, psychological effect on adult humans, and babies have evolved this wonderful mechanism of, take care of me, look at me, I'm cute, and also I'm crying. <laughs> it's horrible, they're just manipulating. Later on, they start to coo and babble, this gets kind of fun, they go, okay, okay. My daughter, Maddie, the one who's in Sweden, <laughs> when she was a baby, when she was about three months old, uh, every right after she would feed, she would go, ah, cool. It was the greatest thing in the world. You could predict it. And it was wonderful, and it was cute, and you'd laugh. The intonation changes are the best thing. Because when babies start act actually talking, they're not talking. They're just cooing and babbling, testing on phonemes a lot of the times. But they have intonation in their voice that sounds like they're having a conversation with you in a language you don't know. Okay, <laughs> they do that, and you go, I don't know, that's a good question. <laughs> it's nice to do my kids, I just talk, talk, they would do the baby talk to me, and I go, I, you know, this is a point I've made many times. You'd be grocery shopping, and the kids would go, I've heard that, is that, who's, is that a new single? <laughs> Talking to one of my kids about the price of gold and why it was being affected by what was happening in the Middle East. People are looking at me in the grocery store like I'm insane. But then, like, she's like, oh, God, yes, exactly. See, she gets it. So, turn everything into a piece of performance art if you can. Um, now, they're testing out phonies usually when they're a little later on. So they're giving it a ga 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 ba 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 ba. The easiest phoneme to make is ma 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 ma, which is not a coincidence that the most common diminutive term in all languages on earth for the mother is ma 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 ma. Gee, I wonder why. Also, you can be a complete, you know, jerk, and when, when, again, your wife or girlfriend who has the baby says, oh, she said mama. It's like, no, I just tested out phonemes. Knowledge is horrible. Um, and then baba or papa or dada are the next ones that develop here. One way, those are the most common ones for fathers. It's not universal, but it says something that everybody uses mama for mother. Not everybody, but it's very common in many languages, even ones that are not related very closely. By the time a kid's 12 months old, they have a vocabulary of maybe 10 words. And it's usually things that matter to them. 
That'll be mama dada. If you have a, a pet, it'll be uh, the name of the pet or the thing it is, you know, dog or cat or whatever. My son, one of the first words, he bath, because he liked baths, and he'd say bath, bath. Maddie, she was, had both languages speak, both English and French around her, so she said shot was one of her first words. Aww. Because we had a cat, we had actually three cats. She said, look beaucoup de chats. So lots of cats in the house. And she called all animals cats for years. Well, <laughs> six months. She was sitting in the car and she'd look out and she'd see cows. She was shot. No, no, those are way too big to be cats. Now, by the time you're two, two-year-old, 300 words, two-year-olds can get across points to you, right? If you've ever talked to a two-year-old. It's not a really scintillating conversation you're having, but a two-year-old can walk up to you with a sippy cup and go, me juice, or just juice. No, you want, I, I see you want juice. Where the one-year-old, no, nah, it's not gonna happen. The one-year-old just goes, we'll just sit there going, Juice, 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 juice. It's much more agency with like a two-year-old, right? And they know a lot more words. By the time you're three, maybe as many as a thousand words. A four-year-old knows 1,500 words. Uses sentences, understands number. Okay. The other thing that's happening in here is the development of using sentences. Because a two-year-old uses what's called telegraphic speech. Right? Or it's the two-word stage. It's interesting that it's the two-word stage in any language. There's no such thing as a language that doesn't do two-word, have a two-word stage in its development in a human, which is pretty cool. It's also true of sign languages, by the way. So, give juice, me juice, you know exactly what's meant there. You know it's grammatically incorrect, but you know what it means. By the time kids may be two and a half, they suddenly out of nowhere, maybe three, start just speaking in sentences. And it's weird, it's just bizarre. Because they go from two words, not to three, but from two words to complete grammatically correct sentences. Around two and a half, three. Has it happened by the time kids about three and a half? It's time to get your kid checked out. Right? Our son spoke in single words. Uh, he's got autism, and then he suddenly stopped. Uh, he didn't really speak till he was about six. Now he just does not shut up. <laughs> so the language ended up developing normally eventually. Whereas our daughter. I remember the day she gave her, said her first sentence. It was Saturday, and we were sleeping in as parents do on Saturday. And she came into our room, climbed into our bed, as she would do. And she was, she was asking for breakfast. She was saying, toast, jus. So juice and toast. And then she looked at me and looked at my pillow and looked back at me and says, so what's that, a pillowcase? <laughs> and I said, excuse me, I may have a touch of a hangover. However, I believe that was a complete sentence. And then she goes back to joke, juice, 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 toast, and toast. 
And I'm like, what? And I look at my wife, I said, she's just going to have sleep, and I don't know what you're talking about. That evening, we're watching TV. She was sitting on my lap, and we were watching a hockey game, as we did. And she looked at me, and she said, look, Dad, she pointed at the TV, look, Dad, it's Saku Koiva, who was a hockey player for Montreal Canadiens. And then she goes back to just speaking in two words. Within two weeks, she's just walking around the house going, so what I was thinking of doing today was maybe we go play somewhere and then you go to the library to get some books. Like she's just, just, it's amazing. So, and a four-year-old probably knows 1,500 words, as I said, and they speak in complete sentences. You can have a conversation with a four-year-old. They're fun conversations. They're kind of ridiculous. But you can actually get an idea of what's in their head when you're talking to them. And they understand number, one, two, three, four, et cetera. How many of these do you have? Now, they may not quite get the nuances of number. They don't. <coughs> but you can ask them, bring me two of those that bring you two. They know what that means, right? You can say things like, go make daddy a really dry martini. And about four years ago, my son said, I'm going to make you a drink, Dad. I went, okay. So he pours like half a bottle of gin into this glass. I said, oh, that's a little strong, son. <laughs> and I was, before I was going to say, just save that. He starts pouring tonic in it. So it's just half gin and tonic, but the glass was like, so I'm like, well, that's, I'm set for tonight. This <laughs> so is a stiff drink, like his whole man. Um, by six, a kid understand, understands tens and thousands of words probably uses about 2,000 daily. Um, an adult may have a vocabulary of 50,000, that's pretty high. That's in English, by the way, as far as vocabulary numbers, some languages don't have more than 50,000 words. Uh, English is funny in that what we do in English is when we don't have a word and another language has a word, we just go, oh, take that. We just use that one, it's a good word, right? We get here, we have no idea, native folks are going around and in these boats, and we, they, they say it's a canoe, and we go, oh good, those are canoes. These take words. This works pretty well for English. Other languages don't work that way, they're much more heavily regulated. That's a pretty good vocabulary, 50,000 words. That's on the top end. You don't use 50,000 words a day. I rarely use words like verisimilitude. <laughs> Is this correlated to dendritic? growth in Broca's area. It probably is, but the world is not quite that simple. When I talk about language, I'm going to explain to you that the whole notion that it's Broca's area is, is a vast oversimplification. Is this true? Probably. Is this the whole story? No, it is not. <laughs> There's no way that's the whole story, okay? But you can see this growth in Broca's area in a five, up to about, about five years old. Um, you can, can you learn languages past five? Yeah, sure, sure. But you end up always having an accent, right? Because you can't quite make the phonemes for the language, so you use the phonemes for the languages or language or languages that you learned to begin with, right? Please. What if, like, like, even if you've practiced quite a bit and you've learned how to... Yeah, some people right? can. Um, they can learn to make some of those phonemes. I, I the other day I talked about how I learned how, that I could go, yeah. back of my throat. But it's, it, it's really difficult, even if you live among people who speak 
whatever language you're trying to get. Uh, people can do it, and people's accents do lessen with time. But they're usually, you can tell. I mean, it's, it's the same reason, by the way, we get you know, accents within, say, English, where we have different parts of the country, where people speak differently. Does it affect the way you speak as, as time goes by? Sure. So you can end up uh, having um, an accent from a, a place where you've lived a long time. I lived in Newfoundland for six years, and when I came back to Ontario, students didn't know where I was from. They just didn't think I was from here. Because I didn't call it a car, I called it a car. Yeah, and I wouldn't want to slip on the ice. I don't talk like that anymore because I sound like Keo. But I've known Dwayne since he was like 18, right? You understand that. I taught him when he was a student, so I like making fun of him. But that went away very quickly. Um, I think a great example is my, my wife who didn't speak English in any large extent until she was 18. Um, and her English is impeccable, but she has an accent. But she doesn't have nearly the accent she had when I, when I first met her. Yes. So it can go away, but it's, it really depends on the person, right? But it's usually still there. And that's why we can still get regional accents. Also, there are accents, by the way, the cool thing about this is this is also true of signed languages. So if you've learned sign language, some sign language, let's go with American Sign Language, that'd be what people would learn in, in, in Canada. Um, there are, people can have accents. People who, who, who speak sign language can say, oh, I can tell where you, where you grew up by your accent, and it's the way you hold your fingers or something, which is pretty cool. That's, that's really quite amazing. Is there, you have many different signs, like different I think there's different words, but there's also just different ways of signing that are just subtly different enough that you go, oh, you're from the East Coast. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking like, you know the sign for dog, there's like four different signs. Okay. You need, it's like two taps on your side, a slap, a flick, a flick, and a snap, or two flicks, depending on. Really? Yes. Does it depend on the dog type? I, I don't think so. Okay. I, it, I was just learning ASL, and he showed really? four different types, and there's also like an online dictionary you uh -huh. can use, but that's for like different, like, Forms of sign language, not just ASL. But this is right. just an ASL. Huh. Four different types. That's amazing. I mean, though, you know, you think about it, we got lots of words for, when you think about dog, when you speak English, you can say it's your dog, it's a puppy, it's a pooch. Uh, you know, you, there's, so it's possible. It's always weird when you think, oh, you have so many words for this. It's like, oh, yeah, we do that in the language I speak, too. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, so this is related, yeah, problem. But it's not, the Broca's area thing isn't quite as simple. The language thing isn't just broken, it's the very easy area. And we'll get to that when I talk about language with everybody. Now, cognitive development's fun because looking at cognitive development in children is fascinating because kids don't know how they think. Little kids. They aren't good at theory of mind, okay? This is something that's kind of hard to correlate these things. If you look at Piaget in stages, the data are suggestive looking at these different, you know, the Piaget kind of stages of, of the cognitive development. There are growth spurts that happen roughly in time, like brain growth spurts, with these changes in cognitive development. Okay. 
that there may not be too much. I mean, there are things like, for example, if you look at a three-year-old and ask them questions about how they think, they can't answer them properly. They don't have theory of mind, really, fully developed. So if you ask a three-year-old a question, actually, better example, you ever played hide and seek with a three-year-old? It's easy. They're shitty at hiding. They can't do it. They'll hide behind curtains and they'll have their feet showing. And you'll look and go, yeah, you're in there. How did you find me? Like they'll, and they're amazed that you can find them. How did you find me? Your feet are showing. Oh. They go right back and say, let's hide. Yeah. Or if they, let's, let's say they find a good place. But you find them because you're an adult. You know, you're not an idiot. You can find kids. They go back and hide there again. Three and a half year old won't do that. They understand that, oh, he knows this place now. I shouldn't hide there again. But three year old, they're great that way. They don't have this theory of mind. This is why, like, a three year old can't lie. They, they don't know how. They, they, they attempt it. Right? You'll try something like, is this thing again? When your parents eventually, you will, uh, you'll go in one day into your kid's bedroom or into another room, and you'll see crayon marks right at the level of where the kid is on the wall. Don't get mad; it cleans up. But you're going to ask the question: Do you draw on the wall? And the kid's going to look at you completely. But no, <laughs> I didn't do it. <coughs> Thinking that they're off the hook now. Not realizing that I'm, you know, it doesn't take a high-level detective to go and see. You're this tall, and it's there. Eventually, they will lie to you, and they'll lie to you with something that isn't really plausible. But the lie will—they'll say something like, "No, uh, Steve did it from next door." It's not a very good lie, but it's somewhat plausible. That's the day we go. Oh my God! Now they have theory of mind. Now I'm screwed. So that does happen, and that's right around the reason growth spurt there at cortex. So there's some reasoning going on there that's a bit different. But yeah, what? Well, just, you know, it's so funny. There's a picture of my sister, who's what, she's 45, but sitting in the middle of a kitchen. She's got all the pots and pans in. She's also uh, uh, eating donuts, which we don't know where she found them. And she's covered in icing sugar. And I remember my my mom thought it was funny. My mom looked at my sister and said, Stephanie, did you make this mess? And she's like, No. That's <laughs> like, of course you did. What kind of lie is that? Let's talk about some environmental effects on development. We can talk about rich rats. You can take rats and you can give them uh, an environment that they, with, 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 I think I talked about this the other day, you give them a lot more stuff to do, you give them toys, you play with them, touch them, and you compare them to non-enriched rats, they end up with having a thicker cortex than the non-enriched rats. And they're better at mazes too, so there's like dark cognitive effects here. These effects, this plasticity, it's called, um, 
plasticity of the nervous system, the, 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 the effects that the environment is going to have on the nervous system decline with age. And that makes sense. We saw just before that the stages of neural development, they're pretty much done in early adolescence in most respects. So what's happening here is experience is sort of fine-tuning the connections that are made. We get this synaptic pruning going on. We get this, or neural Darwinism, if you want to call it that. So as I mentioned, critical and sensitive periods are happening here. Also look at bad things that can happen to the nervous system and how they can affect development. So the example of uh, the orphans in Romania, uh, up until the early 1990s, uh, Romania was a communist country, totalitarian dictatorship, pretty bad way, uh, and the government was also very puritanical, so you couldn't have an abortion, uh, so you ended up with all these babies that people could take care of. And because they couldn't take care of them, um, they ended up in, in state orphanages. But the problem was these orphanages were, uh, neglect is a not strong enough word. These kids were neglected, but it's, it's not nearly strong enough a word. Um, so when the Ceausescu government fell, there ended up being a, uh, a lot of these orphans were adopted out into Western countries when, when, when the government fell. Uh, so it's a, it's a strange experiment, if you want to call it that. Uh, it's disturbing that we call, call it that, but it's, it's sort of an experiment in nature. I just want to pause for a second. It's 11 o'clock, and uh, 101 years ago, World War I ended. And I uh, just want to pause for a second. Just for a moment of silence, please. Thanks. So, the church has become almost horrible. And it was overthrown. And there's these orphans. And I, I can't even describe how shitty it was. Um, and you saw these kids on TV and the world just went, we gotta do something. Um, these kids were, and I kid you not, um, handcuffed to their cribs, um, weren't changed, were covered in sores, like it was awful. So what the West did, a lot of Western countries, especially people in the UK, they adopted a lot of these kids because they, they had nowhere to go. And so we have this, as I said, experiment in nature. 
And if they were, they were adopted before the age of about two, they were fine. Their average IQ is 100 and the standard deviation is 15. They're just, and they're now, geez, they're two, so they're now like early 30s, they're fine. Later than two or three, there were problems. Uh, usually developmental issues as far as uh, cognitive things. So I, IQ problems. Poor health in general. Um, in the early 1980s, when crack cocaine became a thing, uh, people were really concerned about it. What about these babies that are going to be crack babies and their moms are smoking crack? They're going to be like nothing like, they'll be like wild animals. So one person said this and people just said, yep, no one did any research. Because why, you know, it fits a nice narrative. Turns out the fact that especially if the babies got adopted and ended up in a, in a pretty much normal, non-crack-filled home, they're fine. They're fine. And in fact, frankly, the result is more about the lifestyle of any, any changes, are more about the, the lifestyle of being a cocaine user, heavy user, than being a person uh, who, who has crack, smokes crack. So in other words, not enough bad nutrition, it's things like that. It's smoking cigarettes, much more than the cocaine. People got really worried about crack cocaine. They didn't get worried about snorting cocaine so much, which is interesting. And snorting cocaine is the same drug as crack cocaine. Snorting cocaine, is, and the, the penalties in the United States, for possession and selling of crack cocaine are much worse than those for snorting cocaine. Hmm. Why? And it's not a, it's just the same drug. And it's interesting that crack cocaine is more support more taken by black people. The laws are racist. Okay, so um, well the laws can't be racist. The, the, the system's right. The, the people who wrote the laws were probably unintentionally, probably some of intentionally racist. There aren't any crack babies. I'm not saying you should smoke crack when you're pregnant. <laughs> you know, look, do whatever you want when you're pregnant. It's somebody else's responsibility too. But what I'm saying is, uh, it's not so bad. It's probably much worse to drink a lot of alcohol. It's probably much worse to smoke a bunch of cigarettes when you're pregnant. You hear some people say, but they're born addicted to crack. Yeah, but they're, they have withdrawal symptoms. It's not a nice way to enter the world. You have a brand new baby boy. He's also wants to sleep now because he's been full of crack for a while. Um, that's not a nice way to end of the world, but the withdrawal symptoms do go away. Okay. Okay, so some conclusions. Um, first off, development is a tendency called, as I mentioned earlier today, developmental canalization. To go okay even if things are suboptimal. So if things aren't going great, uh, like your mom's a crack. If everything else works out better later, you're going to be okay. Or if you have a genetic disorder that F's with your visual system, then we're turning okay. I don't see great, but I can see. 
And that show C, have you seen that? The show where everybody's blind and it's a weird dystopian future where everybody's blind and Jason Momoa has a sword? Watching that, I'm a superhero in that universe. I can kind of see. You guys suck. Come get me with your sword. Oh, I'm over here now. Blind jokes. Gotta love them. The moment continues into early adulthood, neurally, and, and, and otherwise, obviously. But it's not like what's going on in a baby or a fetus. Don't be, don't be so frightened into banning things for, for especially adults, but even kids. They should not have phones because they're still developing. It's like saying you shouldn't read books because they're still developing. Kids shouldn't watch any TV. Well, people have said that. No one ever says kids shouldn't read books, do they? The comic books, though. They're from Satan. <laughs> Just be sensible with things. Everything's fine. I shouldn't be giving your kid a pack of smokes and some porn. But I mean, that's an odd turn of a phrase. But <laughs> what I'm saying is there are adult things. Even the adults. So yeah, you've learned one thing, don't give your kids smokes and porn. Um, correlating behavioral to neural development is not really super easy, as you saw in the sort of last half of this lecture. We can sit here and talk about neural development really simply and easily, it's not a problem. We can talk about all the different stages, that's easy. It's starting to, to, to correlate it with how development works in an adult human is not an easy, or even a, a baby, not a baby, but a, a baby, or a toddler, or a child human, is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do in a lot of animals. Developmental neurobiology is hard. Because as soon as you start looking at behavior, you're gonna correlate with behavior, there's so many things going on. And nervous systems are so spread out and, and operating in parallel, and hierarchically, remember, um, Saying something is because one system is developing is pretty hard. We can kind of say it with the, with the language one, but as I said, in a couple of weeks, you will find out that language isn't nearly as simple as I've made it out to be all so far, or as you learned in intro second. Any questions? You good? All right, I will see you on Wednesday when we'll start talking about uh, vision, which is ironic because I can't see that well. <laughs>
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.